Welcome to Savage. I'm your host, Kelsey Kenry, CEO, wife, and mom of three. This is where you find the aligned strategy and mindset shifts to unleash your power, unlock your freedom, and step into your full potential as a CEO. Every episode is full of tough love and hard truths with a side of tactical guidance to expand your success. You ready? Let's do the damn thing. But once you start living your truth, I think it's then easier to sort of access that kind of inner beauty that will make you feel more whole. Welcome to the Bravehearted Podcast, where we are changing the way you get inspiration by allowing you to hear resilience and victory in hard stories. We discuss new methods on handling life situations so you can show up confidently in your life. We are different because instead of just giving you inspiration through stories, we give you actionable tools to make the change that you want to make. Let's live bravely today. What's up, guys? Welcome to episode 23 of the Bravehearted Podcast. I am Kelsey Kenwright, and I am a personal development coach and speaker working with women all over the world. And I'm very excited about our episode today. Before we get into it, I just want to say that some of the material that we talk about is deep and can sometimes be controversial. So please use headphones when listening in public or around children. So as you guys know, on the podcast, we are forever talking about therapy and the importance of therapy and what it can do for your life. So we've actually partnered with BetterHelp, betterhelp.com. It's an online counseling website. So you can go on and get a therapist and they will match you with somebody and you can do therapy right from the comfort of your own home, your car, wherever. So you can get 10% off actually your first month with BetterHelp. You just go to betterhelp.com forward slash bravehearted. Hey guys, Mindy Mercurio, career coach, and I help exhausted women let go of their fear to find passion in their work. Today on episode 23 of the Bravehearted podcast, I am so excited to say that we have Sue Williams Silverman here with us. Sue is the author of four memoirs. She is also a professor, a professional speaker, and a writer, and has appeared nationally on many syndicated radio and TV programs, including The View and Anderson Cooper 360. So Sue, thanks so much for being here today. Tell us about yourself. Hi, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's really, um, I'm delighted to be part of your uh, podcast series. So yes, I this is my new book, How to Survive Death and Other Inconveniences, is my fourth work of creative nonfiction. And I might start by saying that some people could think that, gosh, how does, uh, you know, sort of one small life generate, you know, like four memoirs? Like, how do you do that? And my answer to that is that a memoir, first of all, is just a slice of a life. It's sort of following like one theme throughout your life. And so my first book, because I remember Terror Father, I Remember You, was about growing up in my incestuous family. And then my second book, Love Sick, One Woman's Journey Through Sexual Addiction, is about 28 days I spent in rehab, recovering both from a sex addiction and an eating disorder. Then my third book, The Papoon fan club, My Life as a White Anglo-Saxon Jew, is sort of about this very quirky search I had for spirituality. And then this new book, How to Survive Death and Other Inconveniences, really charts my attempt to confront my fear of death, as well as my desire to avoid it. And But I want to hasten to add that that could sound sort of like doom and gloom, but the book is actually written with a lot of irony, as you can probably tell from the title, How to Survive Death. And other, I mean, that's sort of an ironic <laughs> title. And because I don't think I quite am going to be able to pull that off completely. But Let us know um, if you figure that out. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I'm working on it. Uh, but there are, there are uh, on the outside chance that I don't physically survive death, although I would love to, 
uh, the book in many ways, it's kind of, it starts off actually as a both a real and metaphorical road trip. And it is a kind of a road trip through memory. I would say that with all my writing, it's sort of about, you know, collecting memories, but more than just collecting them, sort of collating them or curating them is maybe a better word. So making sense of our lives, because I think that, you know, I as a writer, that's how I make sense of my life. But the more that we do that, the more we make sense of our lives, then in some ways, even this book is about how to survive life and how can we live to our fullest potential. And for me, it is through writing and processing, you know, all of these different things that have happened to me so that, you know, memoir is kind of an, a way to organize your life too in ways that we, that I can't do it just sort of by thinking about it or whatever. You know, obviously therapy played a role in it too, but writing certainly does. Yeah. Wow. And what, like, that's an amazing, like just the pieces of your story that you've already shared, like how amazing is it, you know, that you're here? Like that's, you know, anytime I hear something that like really touches my heart like this to hear just the things that you've been through. And I would love to like dig into so many parts of this as long as you're willing to share. But I think it's, it's so powerful that you're, you know, anytime somebody uses their story to, and shares their story as, you know, to build hope for somebody else and to recognize, like, I always say, it's not, you know, your experiences are things that you went through that's not who you are, you know? And so for you to be able to use that in a way that helped you to, you know, come out on the other side. And I love that you talk about your memoirs being like different pieces of your life too, because that's a really, I've never thought of it that way. And that's really powerful. So, wow, where do I want to start here? Um, I think that I would love to hear kind of like what brought you what was that switch into where you felt like you were ready to kind of share your story? What brought that out for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, before I started writing my first memoir, I actually was writing fiction. I mean, it was really Mm. bad fiction. Um, But I was trying to, the reason why I was bad is because I was sort of trying to tell my story, but it all sounded emotionally inauthentic because I was doing it as fiction. But I think I was too scared to really claim the story as mine. But yet I, growing up in an incestuous family and then living a double life as an addict, I spent so many years in silence and living an, kind of a, this double life. And so I was really ready, I think, to just stop living this double life. And so I was in therapy at the time. And it was really my therapist who said, you know, Sue, why don't you stop writing fiction and tell your own story? Um, And um, at first, that just horrified me. But then sort of to humor him, I really liked him a lot. And he was a terrific therapist. I said, okay, you know, I'll try. And so I did start, that's when I started my first memoir, the one about growing up in in an incestuous family. And that was just like, oh man, like, you know, it's sort of like one of those brain explosions. I suddenly got it. I mean that, yes, I could, I could break my silence. I could tell my truth. The world would continue to turn. My parents actually were dead, but it's just like, you know, that magical thinking my father wasn't going to suddenly appear and like, you know, do something awful. I mean, I wrote the book. It was really an empowering experience. And what made it even more so is that after the book was published, I started getting like hundreds of emails and from mainly women, other women who really thanked me for telling their story too. So it was this a really interesting sort of synergy between myself and all these other women because I think they felt empowered by my book that, yes, we can talk about this. You know, it, it is that sort of hashtag me too, that we're all in this mm-hmm. together. And so, I mean, I happen to be lucky that I have a voice and a platform and I know how to write. But, you know, so it was empowering for them 
but it was equally empowering for me, just all of these connections that I've made with women. You know, that first book was published maybe in 1997 or something. So over the years with all these books, I mean, all these connections that I've made with other women has just been so empowering, as I say, not just for for them, for me. I mean, it's just a way for, you know, women's voices to gather together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it's, I love that you, that you took that leap and then you saw kind of the feedback. And we, we did a podcast about owning your story because a lot of what you say is resonating with me and, and, and my own story and being able to, to share openly and feeling that, that fear that you have of, if I speak about this, I'm going to be judged or somebody's not going to like me. And the truth is, is that people aren't going to like you anyways. And so it's better to just live your truth, right? And Yeah. Or and they then, don't know you. I mean, they may yeah. like you, but it's a you that isn't really emotionally authentic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had a lot more fear writing about sex addiction, you know, with, with the book Lovesick. I mean, I felt enormous shame about that. But I figured, well, I survived the first book and that kind of went okay. So I would take on sex addiction. I will say, though, that I was interviewed by a lot of like these shock jocks and that was soul crushing. That was like they would ask me, this was like on live radio, they would ask me the most inappropriate questions. And it was really horrifying. But I mean, that was hard to take. But then I came to realize you have to set that aside. You know, these men are going to be, they, they're just out to shock people. They just, that's all they care about is sort of ratings and getting people all riled up. So I set that part aside and just realized, okay, but I'm also getting all of these emails and responses and interviews too from women who mm-hmm. totally got this story and who really cared about it. So it's all worth it. You know, it's not all going to be easy. But you have to sort of keep focus on, well, what is important? And the Mm. important thing is that that was the first book written by a woman on sex addiction. And Mm. so to have that platform and to be able to reach all, I got so many emails from women said, oh, I didn't even know what was wrong with me. You know, now I realize, oh, I'm struggling with an addiction. So now I know how to get help. I mean, that's like huge. Because for years, I struggled with a sex addiction. I didn't know that was what was wrong with me either. I thought Mm -hmm. I just hadn't found the right man. I mean, just like it was totally magical thinking there. Yeah. Um, So it's just, it is so important to, yes, own your story, tell your narratives. And not. I realize not everybody's a writer and you don't have to be, but just however, whatever works for you, whether it's talking to your best friend, a therapist, you know, just writing letters to your younger self, writing letters to your older self. I mean, however it is that you want to own your story and be kind of claim it. Okay, this is what happened to me. And there are reasons. I mean, none of us are born addicts or, you know, I wasn't born being afraid of dying, you know, or, you know, it's just these things happen to us. And so that forms us. And then we have to make sense of it all. Mm -hmm. And it's cool too, to hear, you know, it's, I'm very similar in, in that it sounds like you kind of got to a place to where it was like, you released a little bit of the valve, right. And let a little bit out. And it was like a tester. And then it was like the next book and the next book. And you build courage in that. And like, totally talk about building confidence in general, how just keeping the focus on like just showing up and what three of the things that we talk about in owning your story are share it, write it and speak it because it's just like, it doesn't matter where you write it, who you speak it to, but it's just that physical, like removing the energy from your body. That's so empowering. Totally. Totally. And I love that you kind of had like that you built on one thing, because I think that that's kind of the overwhelming thing. And even in my own story, I was able to own things like, you know, my drug and alcohol use and my arrests and things like that. But the sexual piece took me a long, long time so that I I understand like how that is. And I think it's exactly what you said about just recognizing what's the most important thing here. You know, because not only are you saving yourself by being able to speak, but you're also like you have the potential to help other people. Yeah, which is something that I had not anticipate. When I first started writing, I just thought, well, you know, I just write my little book and 
I didn't even know if it'd be published or anything. And then once it was out and then people actually asked me to come give a speech, like if there's college or nonprofit organization, you know, organizations say that we're working to prevent child abuse. I thought, wow, I'm not a professional speaker. How do I know how to do that? I figured, well, I'm just going to do it, you know? Yes. And so it all became very empowering. I thought, you know, I'm just, somebody invited me to speak. I'm going to do it. And I did. And it went well. And then I got, so the whole thing started just from, you know, a little words on pieces of paper. And then I suddenly realized that, you know, I kind of, I mean, this may sound really hokey, but like, I actually have a life and I really did growing up. I thought, you know, I'm just such a mess. And I really was a mess for years. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, I teach at a college, I teach writing in an MFA program. And it it just astonishes me. But it is, I think, finding that one little core inside of you that is still sort of beating and strong and then working from that and just taking one risk after another. Mm. And like in this new book, so it is about how to survive sort of, you know, death and other inconveniences. But the inconvenience part, it's not just about how to survive physical death, but also things like, Oh, what I guess I would call more sort of emotional and spiritual deaths. Mm. Things like how do we survive divorce, addiction, Mm. illness, loss, things like that. And because one thing that I had not written about previously is that, yes, my father sexually molested me. But when I was older, I was sexually assaulted by a stranger one night. And I was at the New Jersey shore And I was just sort of walking by myself and I was attacked by him. So I blame myself for sort of, for that, for years as sort of being, you know, even though it was just sort of wrong place, wrong time. But worse than that is that I got pregnant from it and I had a miscarriage. And so to me, that all tied into this idea of death. I felt like responsible, even though, of course, where I was at the time and because it had been a rape, it was... I was relieved that I had the miscarriage because I was no way prepared to deal with any of, you know, any of that. But I, but at the same time, it was very, nobody talked about anything. So I never told anybody this ever Mm. until, you know, very recently, but just feeling so responsible that somehow my body had been responsible for this death and everything. And so finally, just being able to talk about that and write about that was such a relief. And I mean, to knowing that, okay, people weren't judging me that they, you know, women said, oh, you know, things like that have happened or not maybe necessarily exactly like that, but close enough. I mean, that's the whole, is the whole hashtag me too, that Mm -hmm. thousands and thousands of women who have been, you know, assaulted, raped, molested. I mean, it's just, it's so, the statistics are horrifying. And, you know, and having kept that secret for so many years and then being able to first tell a therapist and then just sort of being able to wrap my mind around what even a miscarriage was because I just tried to ignore the whole thing. And, you know, as you know, ignoring things doesn't make it go away. It makes it worse, as I know, but yet there's still that fear. But then really being able to write about it in this new book and having people really not just not judge me, but being really compassionate about it. I mean, that's ultimately, sure, there may be people who, you know, maybe they aren't pleased that you're telling all your secrets. And I know a lot of men in particular aren't pleased that women are telling their secrets now, but that's, but we have, women have to claim our power and, you know, take down the patriarchy, right? <laughs> and um, from the top down. And, um, you know, that. how do we do it? We do it by coming together in places like your podcast. I mean, this is what you're doing with your podcast. You are giving women a place to um, come together and speak power and claim our narratives. I mean, however we do it through writing your podcast that's what we're doing is we're breaking silences and we're telling our truths. And that's just so important. 
Yeah, it really is. And that's, that's one of the things that when Mindy and I were creating this, it was like our words were kind of aligned that we kept coming back to, or like creating a safe place of hope for people. And exactly. If we don't have that, you know, cause we're already so fearful of even telling one person. And so exactly. the second that kind of that switch is, is flipped into where it's like, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken. You're just, you're struggling and everybody struggles and you're not alone. And it's like the, the breath of fresh air that that is for people. So you've kind of, you know, talked about like bits and pieces of little things that have happened in your life. And obviously that really proves your resilience of you still being here now, but I would like to know kind of, you know, in walking through all this, so it's like you were molested by your father, you've been raped, you've suffered through, did you say drug addiction and sex? No, sex addiction and an eating disorder. Oh yeah. So sex addiction and eating disorder. It's a, it's a, that's a lot of things, you know, and for you to overcome all of those things. So did you find that you finally reached kind of one final rock bottom that allowed you to transition? And what was that like? Yes, I definitely did. So in the sex addiction, so I'd been seeing therapists, like I went through like 10 therapists, but Mm -hmm. I never told any of them what was really wrong with me. So, you know, they said, well, Sue, you're depressed, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, Carry on. And of course I was depressed, but I didn't tell any of them about my childhood with my father, anything like that. And this was really even before the term sex addiction was sort of in our lexicon and our sort of our public consciousness. So none of the therapists had ever heard of sex addiction who I saw. So they just thought, well, yeah, she is looking for love or whatever. Mm -hmm. But finally, I had an affair with a man who was so scary and so used me. I mean, I was really beginning to sort of fall apart and I kind of didn't want to have yet another affair. And he said, oh, well, Sue, you know, we're going to get married. And I actually believed this, which was like totally crazy because anybody in their sane mind would see red flags like just all over the place. I didn't, I saw that, even if I saw the red flags, I I couldn't even register them. them. Yeah, I totally did. So he was very cruel, emotionally manipulative, emotional blackmail. I mean, just awful. So I did have an affair with him. And of course, he immediately left me. So I think I was ready to hit bottom and he totally pushed me over the edge. And at that time, I had been seeing a therapist who at that same time, fortuitously, somehow at that same moment, got this brochure in the mail about sex addiction that he had never heard of. And he said, Sue, you know, I think this is what you're struggling with. And he said, I don't know anything about it, but I can find you a therapist who does He did find me a therapist who knew about it. And it's like, oh my God. It's like, you don't really want to be labeled a sex addict. But at the same time, I was so grateful because finally I had like, okay, this is what is I'm struggling with. I have a definition for what's wrong with me. It's not just some generic depression thing. Of course I'm depressed. I'm depressed because I'm acting out with all these dangerous men who wouldn't be depressed. (laughs) Right. And so... I was so relieved. Okay, so I have this addiction. Now there are steps I can take to recover. And that was like, that was revolutionary. And it wasn't like, a you know, going in a straight line, like now I'm fine. It was a lot of really hard work. I was an outpatient, inpatient, group therapy, individual therapy. It was a lot, a lot of work. But I knew what the work needed to be done. So I was on a path and, you know, day by day, one day at a time, Um, I did get better. And it was in the middle of that that I actually wrote the first book because I I just could start claiming myself, my own language. I had a language. I could start seeing reality. I mean, I just grew up in a sense of, you know, your father's molesting you, but sure, he's your father, so surely he loves you. And surely these Mm. dangerous men now as an adult, surely they love you too because they want to have sex with you. I mean, I was just living with all of these false messages. Mm. And finally in therapy, I started learning like a real language to convey my truth. 
And that's when I could really start writing my first memoir and then the second, the third, and the fourth. But I had to kind of come to understand who I was. And yes, I learned a lot about myself through writing, but so it's a combination of the therapy and the writing. I could really come to understand who I was and what the stories were that I needed to write. Mm, yeah. And I love that you you brought up the point with therapy about kind of going back to another thing you said about being inauthentic, because I think that that's, you know, I work with a lot of clients who, or, or talk to women who have been to therapy and it's been, you know, unsuccessful or they don't feel there was any change from it. And my question to them is always like, are you communicating and are you being honest? Because so much, like we hold so much shame behind these things that it's like, you know, just because you're in a private room with somebody doesn't mean it's like, okay, I feel like I'm ready to share now, you know? And so people don't. Absolutely. And you don't. We have so many trust issues. I mean, I did, I mean, I literally went through 10 or 11 therapists, never mentioned that my father had molested me, never thought that I was... I never even thought really that I was supposed to talk about that. I mean, I, that's how confused and lost I was. I wasn't even like deliberately keeping a secret. But I also know that on some level, I wasn't ready to trust anybody. Mm-hmm. And um, and then finally, just after these years, I'm so worn down. I'm like, I don't know, 97 pounds. I'm acting out. Sexual. I mean, I was such a mess. And then with this one particularly dangerous man, I mean, it was the worst and the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. You know, because they almost destroyed me, but it got my, you know, addicts have a high threshold of pain. So (laughs) got my attention like, okay, Sue, you are not looking for love. This has nothing to do with love. You need help. And then you know, this one therapist found the one who specialized in addiction and sex addiction and eating disorders. And, and then I knew, and even so, I mean, then I did tell that th- the good therapist, his name is Randy, you know, about my father and stuff like that. So I was ready to talk about it and just start moving forward. Yeah. At a certain point, it's like when you put yourself in the same situation so many times. And like, for me, it was finally asking myself, like, what's the common, the common variable here? And it was only me, you know, it was like, no matter what situation I ended, I ended up in, I was abusing myself and hurting myself in some way. So it didn't, yeah, we keep it bringing ourselves to the same situation. Exactly. Yet. Exactly. Somebody else. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing. Like you said, with the, the, you know, speaking of the threshold of pain, because I feel like that when you, you know, as an addict or as a person, even I would say that has been through continuous trauma at a certain point, I believe that you start to normalize that trauma. Totally. And totally. so it's just, you pile on. So it's like one thing after the next, but it's, it feels normal to you. And it's like, oh, this is just a little bit more. So it's not that big of a deal, yeah, right? That's right. Did you it's feel like that? Totally. It's like my default position. Yeah. Um, you know, I go from one dangerous man, I'd fall apart, but then I think, oh, but the next man, it's going to work and then I'll feel better again. I mean, it's that addict cycle. Mm. And I was so into that cycle. Mm. And then until I wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Like going back to that rock bottom. So you were in this relationship and it kind of just lined up to where, was he being physically abusive? No, no. I will say that none of those men physically hurt me. It was really Mm. emotional, Mm. real deep emotional damage. I mean, he knew he was looking for victims. I was looking for a predator. I didn't know it. He was looking for a victim. He he got pleasure from emotionally destroying women. I mean, I'm not, I know who he, he's sort of a famous poet. Um, He's dead now, thank goodness. Um, But um, he, uh, he knew exactly what he was doing and he did it with a lot of women. Mm. And in fact, I do write about it in how to survive death and other inconveniences. If you want to read all about it, it's the section called uh, death comes to the poet. And Mm. it's about this man who, you know, really tried to emotionally destroy me. And, but he's dead. So guess who gets the last word? Yeah. Women. Yes. Yeah. So that's the great thing about being a writer too. If you do live long enough, you do get the last word. I yeah. mean, my father's, de- my father's dead. This poet is dead. Yay. Yay. 
you know, both being a writer and uh, surviving these things that happen to us, I always say that writing creative nonfiction really is not about revenge. It's about self-exploration and coming Mm -hmm. to understand ourselves and our own metaphors. All that said, this one essay about this poet might have a tinge of revenge to it. Um, I just couldn't... I couldn't quite control myself, but even so, it's about, you know, telling the truth of what happened with that and allowing myself to make sense of that experience and how damaging it was, but yet surviving it. Yeah. I think you bring up a good point in talking about revenge, because I think that at some point you have to just center in really on yourself in order to move forward. And you have to just do things unapologetically to where it's just, I'm going to do this. And, you know, some things might happen along the way to where maybe it hurts somebody or somebody is upset with me, but I have to do this for myself. And it sounds like, you know, that's what you did. So my next question to you would be of all of these things like you know what an amazing story you have but of all these things what do you think the the hardest thing for you to overcome was really this miscarriage which Mm. you know with my father molesting me so he did that to me and the sex addiction you know I was looking for men who were predators, they were looking for me. You know, I had to sort of claim that part. You know, it's not like they just did it to me. I was certainly looking for them. But this miscarriage is just, you know, it's really like the like I don't have any other like big secrets. I mean I still will continue to write, but I don't have like the other big revelation kind of thing. But it really was that And, you know, when I first started writing this book, you know, How to Survive Death and Other Inconveniences, I didn't even really know that that was going to be in the book. You know, I mean, a book book itself is a journey. You know, the first draft, I wasn't even sure what I was writing about. And as I say, there's, you know, there's a lot of irony in it. There are funny things in it. Somewhere along the way, for most writers, we write our obsessions Mm -hmm. and... I what I have been obsessed with death. I mean, like even since like third grade, I saw my dead grandfather in a casket. Like this man used to play pickup sticks with me, and how could he suddenly be in a box? And this is like I don't want to be part of that. And yeah. then that was my first early fear of it. And then the sexual assault added to that fear because, like, when you've been assaulted, uh, you feel like your body's been stolen. And like, you don't have control of your body anymore. So that feels like death. But then this miscarriage really felt, I mean, it is a death. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm not getting into the whole life thing or abortion. I mean, that's nothing to do with this. I'm just talking about emotional stuff. That mm-hmm. I mean, it was like a few weeks. I mean, it was just, but just that my body somehow made this happen. I felt enormous guilt about it. That I think was probably, you know, and two, just it being one of the most recent things. I mean, it took me like these three other books to sort of even be able to get to writing about that. I just, it was very hard, very traumatic to tell first my therapist about it and then write about it so that. Mm. Yeah. So one of the things that you said earlier it really stood out to me was, you know, when you're talking about writing and self-exploration, right? You know, it's this exploratory, you learn so much about yourself process. So when you wrote Death and Other Inconveniences and How to Survive That, what would you say was like your biggest, like, aha, like your biggest revelation when you were writing that book? I think that my biggest revelation was that initially I thought, well, I'm just scared of physical death. Mm. And I, but then my revelation was that, oh, there's all these, there are these other forms of death, you know, these other emotional and spiritual deaths that I did not realize that that all played into my general fear of it. So this whole fear around death became much larger than I initially thought it was or would be. Mm. But for the writing process, that was kind of helpful because it was a because I was able to kind of broaden the scope of what kind of like smaller deaths do we encounter 
more daily that we really do have to survive. So, you know, as I said, in many ways, in some ways, this book is also about how to survive life. So what are these other things? Like when we go through like a divorce or addiction, how do, how can we survive those and still kind of carry on? So I think that that was like the biggest revelation to me that initially I just thought my fear of death was just like, I don't, I want to be physically alive forever. <laughs> and, but I knew like that wasn't going to happen sort of, you know, still holding out hope, but then to understand how much deeper that the fear went and sort of different ways that, you know, so this book is like a, it's an, a memoir in essays. And I think that sort of the cool thing about writing a memoir in essays is that you can write about a lot of seemingly disparate things as long as they all kind of feed the same thing. So like, for example, there's one essay about this obsession. I said writers write their obsessions. So one of my obsessions is the singer Adam Lambert. And um, I mean, I'm totally in love with him. I just read that part. And so on the face of it, it's like, well, what does that have to do with your fear of death? And what the thing of it is, is that it's really about, he reminds me of my younger sort of hippie days and a time when, oh, just, you know, life was seemed to go on forever and hippies are sort of free spirits and, you know, and I really loved that part of my life. And so particularly when he was on American Idol, not so much now when he's fronting Queen, but when he was on American Idol, he really did remind me of my hippie self. And so it's not really an essay just about Adam Lambert. You have to say, well, where's the juxtaposition? Where's the intersection between why am I obsessed with him? There has to be a reason. And the reason is because he reminds me of my younger self. So I can write about him, but then there's another essay about an obsession that's totally different from Adam Lambert, which is the cannibal Jeffrey Dahmer. So I also was obsessed with this cannibal. But I wrote that essay just as I was entering my first 12-step group for uh, Sex Addicts Anonymous, and I had the eating disorder. So I was obsessed with this cannibal because like cannibalism is sort of the ultimate eating disorder. And so I felt like kind of this weird connection, not like I did not want to meet him like I wanted to meet Adam Lambert. Believe me, I did not want to meet him. <laughs> but um, But yet I felt like I understood him sort of like because it's just, there's a continuum and yeah, I'm on one side and he's way off the charts on another side when you're, you know, you're being a serial killer and eating people. That's like not exactly anything I can totally relate to, but yet I felt some empathy towards just the struggle that, you know, bad Mm -hmm. shit happened to him when he was a kid too. Mm -hmm. And so nobody's born an addict or a cannibal or any of these things, but in an essay collection, you know, it's sort of like, just changing the lens of the camera, just moving it so that you can explore all of these different sides of, say, in this case, my fear of death, so that even though these things are seemingly dissimilar, they're just approaching this fear of death, both physical death, emotional death, spiritual death, looking at it through a different camera lens, as it were. So that's one thing that I kind of like about writing this memoir and essay form is that you can just keep switching that lens and and going sort of deeper and deeper into what these fears are about. So it's everything from, yeah, my father or this stranger attacking me, miscarriage, you know, Adam Lambert, my love of things are sort of like, well, I'm a hoarder of memories. And I also just love kind of like things, you know, oriental rugs, lamps, whatever. I mean, just things that have a lot of power and things like that I inherited from my parents. Like what is the role, like like just sort of the worry of what happens to your things when you die? I mean, so it can just hold like a lot of different kind of fears and worries. And, you know, there's a thing about, there's an essay about how do I want to be buried in case, or what do I want my remains to happen to them when I die? And I don't want to be cremated. I don't want to be put in the ground. So I'm like really stuck. And I realize maybe I want to be mummified and put in a pyramid. I mean, so they're just all these wild things because that seems like the sort of this, the, I mean, I realize I will be dead and I won't know what will happen to me. But these are just fears that you can really explore, you know, kind of in the writing process. 
in these sort of essay collections where you can just go off on these kind of seeming tangents, but they all kind of feed back into basic theme of death. Mm, yeah. I, that, and that's very interesting. And I'm listening to, like, I'm, I'm learning just about, you know, writing in general. And I kind of have an off the topic question for you. I have two questions for you, but the first question would be like, when you, obviously there's this period of like, okay, first you talk to your therapist and then you're writing it. There was obviously, I'm sure some sort of fear about putting a book out into the world with your story, but did you also fear that like your book would be good? Yes. And um, I, I'm very hard critic on myself. I feel like all my books could be better. And I always were, you know, I mean, the first book won a literary award and that's how it got published. So that should be like good. like Sue that's saying you're good enough. I mean, my second book was made into a movie and it's just like, I still never feel like I'm good enough. I mean, part of me, like, you know, it's sort of like two parts working. Like intellectually, I know, okay. I mean, it's hard for me to even say that. I'm like choking on the words. Sue, okay, I'm a good writer. Yeah, I kind of am a good writer, but yet I'm not good enough. And so it's there's always that fear of being judged. But ultimately, I know that I have to do it anyway. I'm a writer and writers put their words out there. Mm-hmm. And whatever happens, and after it's out there, you, you do lose control over it. The only t- thing you can control is the writing process when you're putting your words on the page. After that, you don't get to choose your book covers. You don't get to choose anything. It's out there. People can say whatever they want. But you have to know, you have to believe within yourself that I have to write these stories regardless of what happens out there. You know, like I said, like with Love Sick, a lot of these mm-hmm. shock jocks, mm-hmm. you know, re- just wanted to talk about sex. I mean, like, really? You know, I mean, like, I knew, okay, they're not going to ask me about my metaphors, but I didn't know that they would be, so, but I didn't know they would be really rude. Yeah. And they really were rude. But mm. you just, wow. you can't, you can't let that stop you. And it's the kind of thing where, okay, I survived my childhood. I survived these things that happened to me. I can certainly survive actually publishing a book. I mean, let's face it, that's like, you know, and, um, and even in the writing process, I know with my students, they say, oh, this, I'm trying to write about this scary thing that happened to me. And I, I don't know if I can write it. And I try to tell them, well, you already survived the thing that happened to you. So if you survived what happened to you, Mm. now you get to make sense of it. So I try to convince them it's like this gift, you know, that now you get to make sense of this thing that happened to you. And yes, it may hurt, but, you know, emotional pain doesn't kill us. You know, it just will learn something from it. And so Mm -hmm. that's sort of how I try to operate. Um, But yeah, it's scary putting your work out there. But but then I get to meet really nice, cool people like the two of you. And that's really nice. (laughs) Yeah, there's so there's so many advantages. And I appreciate like all the answers that you said there. It's like, it's really helpful to me. I'm in the process of writing my first book. And I'm literally writing my rough draft. And there are times to where I'm, so I'm actually like speak, like doing talk to text because it just, I can speak better. I feel like right now. And I'm like, this is not good. This is, this is awful. (laughs) And I'm, I recognize exactly when you said there's almost like two people because there's the part of me that's like, you have to get this on paper. So the way that my book is set up is it's basically kind of a little bit of a mix of a memoir and a self-help book. So I'm writing my story mixed in with like steps on what people can take to kind of overcome. Right, right. And I just, you know, it's exactly what you said to where I'm like, this is important. Like you have the opportunity to help people. Like you're good at this. You do this as a job. And then the other part of me is like, oh, this is awful. These I'm like mumbling over my words. and just- But also know that it's a process. And sometimes first drafts are exactly what they're meant to be. They're first yes. drafts and they're not polished. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, by the third, fourth, fifth, you know, 20th draft, it will be where you, you know, so also just remember that it's such a process. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's really helpful. I have a, I have a coach that I'm working with and she just said, just recognize, like she said two things that were really helpful. And she was like, the first draft is just getting words on paper. And so that yeah. kind of sits with me. And that's then the right. other part that she was really helpful with is she's like, that so much is going to change in the editing process and a lot of little things like that's why you have an editor. So, you know, it's my first time, so I'm still learning, but you know, I think that all of this kind of links back to my next question. Like, I feel like one of the most important things in my life and, you know, not just with writing with a book, but what I do for my career and the, the relationships that I build is leaving a legacy. And I know that, you know, this is something that's important to you and probably a big part of, of what you do. So can you talk to me about how you feel about that? Yes, absolutely. You know, again, how to survive death and other inconveniences, one way to survive death is through the legacies that we leave. I mean, and that I feel really strongly about. And it can be through your children. It can be through writing. It can be through good works that you do. I feel part of it. It's through my teaching, by passing on what I have learned to my students who then will continue to pass it on. And so I think that it's like leading a worthwhile life. Mm-hmm. And um, and that can take so many forms. I mean, now during this pandemic, it's people delivering groceries to my house. I mean, that those are that's good work. The people on the front line, these doctors and nurses. However, we are chosen, or however we choose to do something positive in the world. For me, as a writer, you know, like this current book, it is kind of like this sort of metaphorical road trip through memories and it's collecting these memories and setting them down because memories are immortal. Mm, You know, I'm not immortal, sadly, pisses me off, but, um, (laughs) but, um, but our memories are, you know, but I have to get them out there. And I do that as, as a writer, but you know, you certainly don't, obviously you don't have to be a writer to have a legacy. I mean, it's just, we all, choose our paths. And, you know, like say for your podcast, I mean, this platform that you're giving women and your openness to hearing like all of our voices and whatever our stories are, I mean, that's a huge legacy. Yeah. And I think that that resonates a lot probably for both of us because, you know, we recognize that you know, people need this safe space, but, you know, leaving something behind. And I love that, you know, it's like you said, there's so many, there's so many different ways that you can leave things behind. Yes, yep, absolutely. You know, and now with the internet, I mean, your podcast will be on forever. I mean, you can't get rid of anything on the internet. So that's a good <laughs> thing. So your podcast will live forever. I very, very much know thing, this because right? my, my mug shot is still, still out there. <laughs> Yeah, so that's the that's the bad side. We'll forget about that part. I know. I just, I just, you know, one of the things that I say when we talk about owning your stories, I'm like, nobody can say anything that I can't say that I've already said. You know, it's like it's all out there. So it really is. It is. But see, now with your book, though, you get to sort of overcome that mugshot. You get to sort of tell the real story behind it, and that's you know, so that's part of it too. So for sure, I love that. I love that. Owning your story is so important and have that, having that power and taking that power um, back from a situation. It's just, it's, you know, it builds that emotional resilience, which we talk about a lot on the podcast, but it's amazing. You know, yeah, absolutely. So kind of just wrapping up here, Sue, you know, like if you could give them one thing, just one takeaway from this entire conversation, what would be like the takeaway that you want them to get a, a tool they could use something of that nature? It's really to live your truth, I think. Mm-hmm. And if you're keeping secrets, they're hurting you. And find one safe person. Or first, just take a piece of paper and write down what your truth is. Mm-hmm. And see if you can share that with somebody. If you can't share it, that's okay too. But just live your truth. And don't live somebody else's life. Live your own. And, you know, know what things are meaningful to you. I mean, where do you find meaning in the world? And I think that it's easier to find that when you are just owning up to what your truth is and just letting 
that part of you, because that's sort of the beautiful inner self in a way of letting that mm-hmm. out. I think that when I, so when I say, what does that mean? Tell your truth. It's sort of, we all have these beautiful inner parts of ourselves, but sometimes they're really wounded and they're hard to sort of access. But once you start living your truth, I think it's an easier to sort of access that kind of inner beauty that will make you feel more whole. Mm. I'm yeah, crying. No, <laughs> I, I know. Oh That's, man. But it's, so true like that there's so much beauty and pain and i yeah i'm having to hold myself together okay and it's kind uh, of it's kind of like my nothing. eyes are just my eyes are just welling it's like you're speaking to my to my soul and i think that like it's so it's so so powerful because if you like i understand what you're saying and i understand now what it's like to be on both sides of that and when it's like you're so fearful of just being honest with yourself and like just the part that you said about just write it down on a piece of paper like that it's that, the first that, step oh yeah yeah and it's a huge step i mean it's huge the courage to do that is huge mm-hmm. and i know a lot of the truths are painful but pain actually does not kill you. Mm -hmm. It makes you stronger. And I know some of the sounds like maybe a little hokey, but it's so true. I mean, I remember telling my therapist, I can't go to therapy and teach on the same day. It's just like, I'm going to be too devastated by the pain in therapy and I can't show up. And he said, Sue, you can feel pain in the morning in therapy, then just get into your adult self and go teach. And I did. And it was like, oh, yeah, I can, I can do that. And so I think the other takeaway is that we're stronger than we think we are. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I know that I really, I thought I was a total basket case, honestly. I just, I can't function. I can't do anything. And then my therapist just kept, <laughs> he believed in me. It's nice to have somebody believe in you until you can believe mm. in yourself. So finding a safe person like that is also really helpful. Mm. Uh, whoever it is, doesn't have to be a therapist, just somebody who can sort of, you know, can believe in you until you finally sort of start believing in yourself. Mm. But I realized that I could feel just total devastation in therapy and feel just and be crying and just, you know, all of that, just stuff you would never want your students to know about. Yeah. But then... That would be like at 10 in the morning. And then by three in the afternoon when I had to show up at class, I'm like, I have my adult clothes on and, you know, my makeup on, my hair isn't like, you know, floating all over the place. And I'm looking really adult. I say, open your books to page 30 and they all open their books to page 30 and I'm an adult and I'm ready to go. And I would never have thought that I could actually do that. And Mm. then I did it. Yeah. And then I did it a second time. And then I did it a third time. Mm-hmm. And then I just kept doing it. Yeah. It's and amazing. Go ahead, Mindy. I was just going to say, it's amazing the narrative we tell ourselves um, when we say, I can't do this. I'm not strong enough to do this. I can't work through this. And then all it takes sometimes is just one other person telling us, yes, you can. and getting Exactly. Yeah. And getting it out there and then just doing it and building that confidence small steps at a time, just one small step at a time. So I teach in an MFA program at Vermont College of Fine Arts. So yes, I have to teach my students craft about how to write. But I'll say too that a huge part of my teaching is also just the encouragement, like, yes, you can do this and sort of the courage to write. And yeah, you know, people will care about your story. So just that belief in my students and belief in their narratives and belief that their narratives are equally important as anybody else's. So yeah, we teach craft a lot, but when you're teaching writing, maybe particularly teaching creative nonfiction, it's also teaching belief in the self, belief in their stories, belief in their narratives Mm. and their truths. I think that's with anything because I recognize a lot. I mean, I can't tell you, I probably, Mindy uh, actually was a former client of mine and now we've just become Mm -hmm. such good friends, but I probably said it to her before. I said to all my clients, all like my, my biggest goal is always for you to believe in yourself as much as I believe in you. And like, for me, I, I hold that so highly because when I was walking through everything that I was having to own and, and discover about myself, I just remember there was a small glimmer 
of hope. And so like my ideal has always been to be that glimmer of hope for people because it's totally. so powerful. It's so powerful and it, it, can, really, it can really is change everything. Yeah, it's powerful for the person you're working with and it's powerful for yourself. It is that kind of synergy. Yeah. And it's, if it's okay, I'd like to just tell your listeners my website because that's they can find they can contact me yeah, through my website. Yeah, if that would are. be that would be our next question is, you know, obviously like more than anything, thank you for thank you for sharing with us. Like, you know, yeah. any and hopefully, you know, this will help somebody else. And I'm sure that people will want to read your books now. I don't know that I definitely am, am interested in wanting to read all four of them. So that will have to go with my large Thank collection of, to read. But um, yeah, to tell us more about where anybody can find you. Sure. So my website is um, com. So it's my full name. It's S-U-E-W-I-L-L-I-A-M. S-I-L-V-E-R-M-A-N. So my full name.com. And uh, if you just Google me, it'll, my website would also come up. And there you can find, of course, information about all my books, but there's also my contact information. If anybody wants to contact me, I'm always very open and available to people. Yeah, I appreciate that. You might see an email from me when I'm in that position of of hating the book that I've written. <laughs> just please email me. Yes, please email me and, I, and I'll talk you down. I'll talk you through it. Yeah, and, please. Um, yeah, so is there sure. anything else that you would like to leave our listeners with today before we sign off? I just would like to first thank you for listening. Well, thank the two of you for having me on and thank people for listening. And just think about yourselves. You know, think about what you can do even today, right now, that is meaningful to you that maybe you wouldn't have done yesterday. Trust whatever it is that is sort of leading you forward. So, yeah, mm, just beautiful. trust in yourselves, yeah. trust in your truths. And also, I guess, just know you're not alone. Whatever you're going through, you are so not alone. Yeah, They're just hundreds of thousands of other people, probably maybe mainly women who are kind of like we're all standing together. Yeah. In one way or another, we are, right? Yeah. Yeah. And awesome. stay safe during these times. Yeah, of course. Of course. Um, awesome. awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, thank you. We'll definitely reach out to you and uh, just thank you again so much. Yeah. This has been amazing. Thank you so much, really. So nice to spend time with you. Nice spending time with both of you as well. All right, Mindy. Wow. Wow. <laughs> what an incredible episode. Yeah. Okay. Um, so do you want to talk about what we're talking about next week? Yeah, absolutely. So in episode 24, we are going to talk all about how to find passion in your career or find out what you're passionate about and maybe you need a career change. So we'll do a little bit of a maybe a Q&A style. Um, Kelsey will ask me some questions and we'll talk about how you can chase after what you really are passionate about and live your dreams. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I think that it's it's really important to find passion. We spend so many hours working, so you yeah. might as well get fulfillment from what you do. And I think that a lot of people disconnect themselves and don't think that that's possible because it's, you know, it, it can be just, we look at it just as a paycheck and it doesn't have to be that. So I'm excited to talk more about it. Wow. I'm like coming down from that interview. <laughs> it was incredible. Um, it was incredible. But yeah, thank you guys so much for listening in today. Definitely check out Sue. What a, what an incredible human. Um, and we will see you guys next week. So don't forget to live bravely today. If you are a CEO or entrepreneur, I want to invite you into a space that's unlike anything out there. CEO Power Hour is a free monthly live experience that you can join in person or virtually to get your questions answered to fulfill the desires for your business. 
Inside this room, you bring your biggest goal, the obstacles you are experiencing, or anything you want my expertise, eyes, and ears on. This guidance, along with the ideas and inspiration from other powerful women, allows you to be fully immersed in the energy of being supported and learn in a completely new way so that you can expand your business and your life to the next level. I created CEO Power Hour to bring together powerful business owners for connection, collaboration, and coaching. This is your invitation, and it's free. The link is in the show notes, so I hope to see you at our next monthly meeting.